Welcome to Phoenix and Flame, pushing through and transforming even when you feel like a pile of ash. This podcast is not intended for use as psychotherapy. If you feel you are in crisis, please call 911 or contact your local crisis hotline. Welcome back to Phoenix and Flame, or welcome to Phoenix and Flame if this is your first time coming to my podcast. I'm Dana. And this is my podcast on pushing through and transforming, even when you feel like a pile of ash. Well, a few weeks ago, actually quite a few now that time gets, time gets by with me, it just goes really fast these days, but I decided to start a series, an interview series called You're Not Alone, because as a psychotherapist, I kept running into situations where... I would hear someone tell their story and they would feel rather isolated. They would share with me some really, really harsh things they were having to deal with. And they would say, I just feel so alone. I'm so alone. But I knew they were not alone because I got the privilege of being able to hear other people's stories, but they did not know that they were not alone. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to start an interview series on my podcast so that we can reach out to our Phoenix and Flame community and really rally around one another, support one another, and really be willing to be transparent and explain harsh things that we've experienced and we're going through. Because you know what? There's someone else out there that might be going through the exact same thing right now, feeling very alone. So the interview series you're not alone was really to reach out to create some connection and it was also to be able to help us understand what other people's situations are like i was interested in reaching out to individuals who had gone through things that were diverse from my experience or from some other people's experiences that i have been around so that we can gain an understanding of what it must be like to walk in someone else's shoes, to have that empathy and to have that support. For anyone who's listened to me in my prior podcast episodes knows that I'm not a big fan of judgment. I don't like people judging each other. I would much rather us understand one another's stories and walk in each other's shoes. And I think when people have an opportunity to hear someone's story and connect with that person, they're much less likely to be judgmental and react in uh, hurtful or critical ways. And so that was some of my motivation for creating the interview series, You're Not Alone. So today we are blessed. We have someone with us. Her name is Heather Hutchison. And Heather is a singer and songwriter and also an author multi-talented very creative currently living and she'll correct me if i'm not if i don't have this right but currently living in vancouver island canada heather was blind since birth and she's also experienced some time not only in canada but latin america and last thing i'll say before i'll turn this over to heather and i'll stop talking quite so much Heather has also uh, been very open and transparent about her struggle with mental illness that resulted in inpatient psychiatric hospitalization during the COVID uh, crisis, which we're still kind of in, but not 
as bad it was in like closer to 2020 and how she has really taken refuge in music and she has songs that she has sung she has this gorgeous voice and near the end of the uh, podcast episode i'll tell you more about her website and her memoir that she wrote and that kind of thing but right now i'd really would just like to kind of stop talking quite so much and hear from heather um her story so heather welcome to phoenix and flame so heather if you would just kind of share with us you said um well on your website that you were born blind. So I know there's going to be some individuals that are probably going to be interested in, you know, what some challenges that you've had and what your experience has been like um, going through life without sight. I think when you're really young, you're, you're in this kind of bubble, you know, with your family and people closest to you. And for me, like, I never really noticed that, that I was different, that society saw me as different until really almost elementary school I remember going on vacation with my family and playing on the playground with this this kid who was a couple years older than me I was probably five at the time and we played together all afternoon and he at one point turned to me and said why don't you ever look at anything and I told him you know I'm blind super matter of fact, you know, like I have brown hair and blue eyes because it never really crossed my mind that anybody would view it as anything negative. And his reaction was so sudden. He um, turned around. I was standing at the top of the slide. He turned around and pushed me backwards off of the slide and he slid down the slide and yelled some insult about me being blind over his shoulder and got on his bike and and pedaled away and and he was just gone i never saw him again and i just remember lying there on the playground thinking to myself i am different different is bad and and this is forever and i can't fix this oh my gosh what a story that how hateful yeah yeah it was very shocking it was kind of my first experience with you know as you said in the intro people you know fearing differences instead of trying to understand them because obviously that kid he got that from somewhere yes he did i mean i i wish we could say that that kind of behavior was limited to children that don't really understand what's going on but adults are very much like that as well unfortunately if they, if, if they see someone that is unlike themselves then they tend to respond in a negative way and that's one of the reasons why i wanted to do this interview series so we can really hear each other's stories so we don't feel like you know we're estranged from one another but we feel connected yeah yeah absolutely and to take away i think some of that mystery because the unknown creates you know a, an unnecessary amount of fear Yes. Yes, it does. That's a very good point. The unknown creates a lot of anxiety. So just being able to fill in those blanks for people so that they just understand. Yeah. Yeah. We're so much more similar. We're so much more alike than we are different. A hundred percent. Absolutely. We can learn so much from each other Yes. if we just listen and, and open up and we're willing to share, but people aren't going to share if they don't feel safe sharing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what was your experience like going through school and kind of where did that lead you? Where did your path lead you through school or other ways? Yeah, it was 
it was challenging from an educational standpoint i guess that's it's all the little things that people don't really think about like um it was really hard to get textbooks in braille i didn't have a calculator things like that for math so um it was challenging on that front for sure it was hard because there was never enough money in the school system so like i would go to you know a new school they would have meetings before i went to high school or whatever at this new school and i would go and all i would hear is you know there's no money there's no money so, you know, you automatically don't really feel welcome at, at you know, you, you're not showing up to a place every day where you feel like you're wanted there. Um, I did have a really good core group of friends, for sure. There was a lot of bullying that, that did go on outside of that core group of friends. So I really turned to music, in especially in high school. Um, I struggled with anxiety from a really young age I think probably about grade two they started sending me home a lot from school because I would always be sick and the pediatrician I hope this is changing now but back then the pediatrician was just basically like well she's an anxious kid she'll grow out of it which is really unfortunate because I think when you know you have the best chance of changing those patterns that behavior if you intervene really early so obviously I didn't grow out of it and I think the anxiety kind of led to depression by my early teens because you know who wants to feel that way all the time so you're kind of looking for a way out and for me a healthy way out of that was music so I would spend a lot of time as much time as I could at school in the band room and things like that and writing songs and it was really helpful for me to you know, because it's a confusing time. So to get out the all the racing thoughts in my head into music. And then I actually, my first CD came out when I was 16, oh, which wow. was like really crazy. Yeah, I, I met a producer in a, comp, a talent competition I was in and he was on the panel of judges and he came backstage afterwards and he was like, yeah, I'm a producer and I, I really liked your your music. We should talk about recording together and I was flattered but I didn't think anything would come of it and then three weeks later we were in the recording studio so it was like crazy going from the high school band room to the world of professional music in three oh weeks but God. it was really cool because after the album came out I you know would play these concerts and at 16 years old people would come up to me and they'd be like you know I heard this song of yours and I went through such and such a situation and and this song really helped me so it was really like that human connection that I was really fortunate to find in music oh wow that that is just amazing and I the the point that you made about early intervention I think is just is just key really having that opportunity for for people to reach in and help and you didn't they didn't do that you know the pediatrician yeah. just said oh you know she'll grow out of it no big deal yeah oh my gosh and so for you to get to the point of kind of teaching yourself and I, you said you're in the band what instrument did you play in the band piano and I sang like I just I took as many band courses as I could in high school um I 
you know, I was in the guitar ensemble, I played piano, I was in choirs and things like that. So basically whatever, whatever options I could take just to spend the most time in the band room because it just felt like a really safe place when the rest of the world didn't feel that safe. Oh, that's a very good point. Now, was this all in Canada? Yes. Okay. So you said you went from basically a 16-year-old band member and choir member to having you're a professional CD produced. Is that, did I hear you right? Yes. Yeah. In a matter of like a couple of weeks. So it was, it was really incredible. I feel still just so like, I still just shake my head at, at how all that came together. Oh my goodness. Wow. What was that experience like being kind of under the wing of someone who was professional? I just remember walking into the recording studio that first day and there was so much to learn, but for the first time in my life, it just, it felt like I'd come home. It felt like the world made sense in this, in this little place. And everybody that he surrounded me with, you know, from the engineer, the audio engineer to the other session musicians, they were just all so, um, accepting of me and you know they never a lot of people tend to meet me and and just get really weird about like me not being able to see you know they don't want to talk to me directly um it makes them really uncomfortable but to these people I was just you know this girl who loved music and they treated me as an equal and that was such a crucial part for me I think at that point in my life to find that oh my that's yeah that's huge you know like you said yeah. being able to find your own place and, and being with people that just just let you be you yeah 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 that is something that I think a lot of people that are experiencing uh, diversity in different ways is the struggle to try to find a place where they feel accepted and included and connected Mm. So how did, where did that go from there after you were 16? So I kept playing music. My next CD came out when a couple of years later, I guess I was 19. And then I, I was actually in university at that time. I was actually studying psychology. <laughs> and then I switched my major to, to music, which was, you know, a poor life decision. <laughs> One of these things uh, pays more than the other but um it was fun at the time so yeah and then i i finished music school and i moved to south america so why did you move to south america that's an interesting choice from canada that's a quite a little distance yeah. there <laughs> yeah yeah just a bit um for me it was always i i grew up surrounded by the latin Amer american community in canada as much as possible and I found that a lot of Canadians, to to generalize here, they kind of have one of two responses to my blindness. They either get super awkward about it, like they they try to avoid it almost. So it's just this elephant in the room that like you know they want to talk about it, but they don't want to, you know, tell you that they want to talk about it. So it just becomes this this big awkward thing that nobody wants to talk about. Or they try to pretend they're totally cool with it by like cracking on these blind jokes, which is great. I 
like a good blind joke as much as the next person but <laughs> i've heard them all like a thousand times before like nobody comes up with anything original <laughs> but the, the people in latin america for whatever reason it was kind of like walking into the studio for that first time again where they just they got it and they accepted things they accepted me for who i was they saw me for who i was i was not just the blind girl to them uh they were just more intuitive they kind of intuited what i needed they didn't need to ask as many questions but they weren't awkward about it either so for me going to south america i wanted to experience that fully to be really immersed in in that kind of acceptance i guess and to be different for a different reason is that is that what you found when you moved down to to latin america is that what you found was your experience there what you thought it was going to be yes definitely i i say that it was i felt more me i guess in that year than i felt in the rest of my life just a bigger like more defined version of who I think I am. Oh, wow. I like that. And I have a question for you in just a minute, but I did want to make a comment that sometimes, you know, it's not uncommon that we see people that are born with some kind of diversity, something that makes them feel different from their surroundings or that their people around them make them feel like they're different in some kind of way. Sometimes we'll end up going to larger cities where there's more people like them and they feel like they can blend in more and they don't feel like they stand out like that pink elephant like you were mentioning earlier. Yeah. Do you have any suggestions for people that maybe they might have been one of those individuals that are kind of awkward and don't really know how to interact with someone who has, you know, blindness or or another form of diversity? What what piece of, of advice would you give them to to help them just be more accepting and for someone that just feels really kind of awkward and out of place, but they don't want to, but they don't know really how to change it? What would you suggest to them? It's challenging for sure. And I think it kind of comes back to remembering that we are all so much more alike than we are different. So, you know, we all kind of want the same things. We all want to be comfortable I you know I want everyone else to be comfortable because then I can be comfortable so I think just really you know trying to and I know it's hard but trying to see the person for more than just that one big difference that you're noticing and instead maybe try and focus on the ways in which we are alike you know ask questions about hobbies about you know, work, things like that, instead of just talking about their differences. And in asking those questions, I think you're going to find out, you know, what makes us the same and what makes us different as well. And I think just strip away a lot of that that discomfort when we realize, hey, like this person's actually a lot more similar than I would have thought. Oh, I love that advice. That is just, that is wonderful. Because I've noticed the same thing being a psychotherapist. I have a lot of my patients that come in and although in the community, they might appear to be very different. Like one might be a sales clerk at a local department store. And there might be another patient of mine who's a CEO or another that's a surgeon or another that's a librarian. 
people that out in the community might not walk in the same circles or might feel quite different from one another. But I know from being in my office and talking to them and what I consider a privilege to hear their backstage story. You know, I get to see behind the curtain and I know that we are all the same. We all want the same things. And so that's kind of what your point is, is that there are so many more ways that we're alike than anything that makes us different. Yes. Yeah, that is a hundred percent. So glad you brought that out. That was, that's very helpful. And I hope, you know, if anyone's out there and is listening to this, this episode, if you happen to have struggled uh, with anything like that, if you interact with someone or happen to run across someone or find yourself in a conversation with someone that you feel like is different from you, okay, that's okay. Focus on what makes you more alike. Focus on the commonalities, the similarities, and reach out to those things instead of focusing on the one thing that you feel it makes you different. Yeah, exactly. Human emotion is just so universal. Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, everybody wants to feel uh, acknowledged and appreciated and loved and cared about. We all want connection. It's just we're all really very, very much the same when you talk about emotions. So how did your life progress once you moved to Latin America, down to South America? And then was it your music career? Was that what you were following there? Or or what did you pursue? I was actually teaching English and hoping to play some music on the side. I was hoping to record an album when I was down there. It, It didn't happen. It's still one of those things on my bucket list that I hope I will end up doing soon. I was actually recording with a producer from Cuba right before um, COVID, but so that obviously got put on hold. So hopefully that will um, still get finished. But yeah, so I I played shows down there. I met different musicians, you know, learned different styles of music, learned from, from everyone I met down there and just really taught English and, and hung out and made really good friends and um i wanted to stay there forever it was like a financial thing um we kind of realized we'd already become homeless once in in peru we were in peru my partner and i and um, we really realized that we were one emergency away from not being able to eat or being homeless again so we ended up coming back to canada which was like reverse culture shock is very much a thing. So I really struggled when I got back. Oh, wow. So I've got, I've got two questions for you about that. One of them was, what was the, the homeless experience like, like when you were so close, you know, and when you, I think you said you experienced it once and you were very close to yes. experiencing it again, that is something else that, you know, some people are, are going through in, in the world and it's a re- very real issue what was that like for you? What What is something that you would want other people to know so that they can maybe be more uh, supportive and helpful? What What helps and what does not help? I think the biggest thing I learned through that experience was the incredible compassion and kindness of strangers who, you know, give what they can and took us in really where we had nowhere else when we had nowhere else to go I think the most humbling experience or one of that I've ever had is 
showing up at the door of a complete stranger who was a friend of a friend of a friend's brother with all our worldly possessions sitting at our feet and and they took us in without question and i think that really speaks to the power of of community and humanity and and really you know who I don't know. Um, what am I trying to say there? <laughs> I think you said it. It does. It speaks a lot to just being willing to to be open and reach out. And because there's yeah, so many yeah. people, I think, well, I don't want to say so many. I'm kind of generalizing there. But there are people out there that tend to want to be more critical and judgmental. And they want to point out, you know, yeah. well, you know, why are they in that situation and they made bad choices and da 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 rather than just being loving and open and realize, you know what, we all make bad choices and most of us aren't very few choices away from something like that. And sometimes life just happens to people. Things just happen. And being yes. willing to be loving and open and just to be part of that support structure for someone is really something that we're going for here. Yeah, yeah. And to kind of pass that on, because we don't know when we might be in a similar situation where we're relying on the kindness of strangers. That's right. That's a very good point. And you, you had mentioned earlier about a rever reverse culture shock, you know, when you move back to Canada. So what was that like for you? What did you experience when you moved back? So... The very first interaction I had in the airport when I got back to Canada was with a man who, well, I didn't even have the interaction with him because he actually spoke to my partner. He wouldn't speak to me directly and he came up to us and he said, what's wrong with her? Was she born like oh that? Oh my gosh. And in the entire time that I lived in Peru, nobody had ever said anything to me like that it's fairly common in Canada to hear things like that I never heard it once in Peru and so within five minutes of being back I'm like oh yeah that's why I wanted to leave oh my goodness I mean how do you even gosh what do you even say to somebody like that I mean that's just so uh, I don't even know what you even say just like okay you have a nice day <laughs> <laughs> just keep yeah, going pretty much i don't know i've i mean i've been dealing it with for how many years now and i still don't know what to it still catches me off guard Ugh. well i'm sorry you had to go through that but hopefully you know as more you continue in your life and teaching people and being such a wonderful example that you are that others will you know if they happen to see someone else out there who happens to have the diversity that you have or another type of diversity that there'll be more just like, okay, that we need to like make it not such a pink elephant in the room, that it's just another animal in the room, that we're all animals in the room. There's no one that's a pink elephant and we're all just in here together. And it's just like, you know, we need to, we need to eliminate the pink elephants. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nobody wants pity or, or, you know, awkwardness. Everybody just wants to be accepted. Yeah, just being a human being, like you said earlier, just looking at what makes us the same. What do we have in common? Not something that makes us different. Yes. Well, ironically, you know, some of the things that when people are different, when they're, there can be some key differences that are really significant and not in a good way. And you could not tell by looking at someone on the outside. 
but their differences are on the inside. And sometimes they're, like I said, they're significant and they are not healthy, but you wouldn't know it to just look at them. So it's kind of like, you know, differences, we all have differences, internal, external, but we all have much more similarities as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when you came back to Canada, and then what was your progression at that point? So things were difficult at first. I eventually kind of pulled myself together and uh, recorded a new album um, based on my experiences that I lived in Peru and the experiences I lived coming back from being in a place where I was so happy to be myself and um, yeah things went fairly well for a while after that and um, I've been struggling with major depressive episodes since I was fairly young so you know it would be like a year would be good and then there'd be a couple weeks or a month or a few months that everything would kind of fall apart and I guess in November of 2018 I entered into a major depressive episode that didn't end like the others had and you know as the months went by I got sicker I stopped eating I stopped sleeping my hair was falling out and in June of that year I remember going to the doctor we set up like an emergency meeting and they were able to keep me out of the hospital that time they adjusted my medication made sure that I was getting more outpatient mental health supports and things started to gradually get better but then in March of 2020 when the COVID pandemic hit um, I think I wasn't far enough into recovery that I could deal with it on my own and my doctors and therapists had stopped seeing patients in person they weren't doing video calls by that point so it was literally like just talking on the phone and they they couldn't see the physical signs of my decline and things got worse as the months went by um for me a big thing is like i'm a total control freak and i think with covid a lot of people found like there's nothing we can control we don't know what's going on and for me throughout my life when i would be in these major depressive episodes i would have like these kind of survival goals of like, I can't kill myself until I go to Mexico one last time or I see my friend one last time, things like that. And I would like put dates on it and then work towards those dates. And then when that passed, I would have to create something else to look forward to so I could continue on. And then COVID came and all of that kind of fell apart because nobody knew when we were going to be able to do anything. So basically I decided that the one thing that I could control is how and when I was going to die. So I made plans. I got all my affairs in order, everything like that. And kind of at the, at the last minute, I, I thought to myself, I'll, I'll go to the hospital. I don't care. I don't want to get better. I'm basically going for absolution so that my family members can feel better about it when I'm gone. Like, oh, well, she tried. Um, but I figured that they would just send me home and, and that would be that. And I'd also done a safety plan with, with my therapist when I first started seeing him that basically listed, you know, the signs that I was starting to spiral, what I could do about each of them. And then at the very end, it was 
you know, when all else fails, go to the hospital. And I'd signed that document. So I was like, well, I don't, I don't want to die with a broken promise. So I'll go to the hospital. And I was admitted as an involuntary patient. So obviously my <laughs> things didn't quite go to plan. The crisis plan that you mentioned, I have done those. It's kind of like a contract in a way. I've, yeah. I've done those with yeah. some of my patients before where, you know, we just basically list out sort of like a hierarchy of people yes. they would call or, or um, agencies they would call. And then at the end, it's like, you know, an emergency room you would go to and then they would sign it, then I would sign it. And it's sort of like an understanding, a contract between the two of us that they would try everything on that page before they would actually try to attempt to take their life. Yes. Yeah. That's exactly the, the same sort of contract. Yeah. Oh, my it's so it's refreshing to hear you you know tell your story because i know that there are other people who have gone through what you've just described about you know just struggling with the depressive episodes and what that feels like and something that i was just thinking about the other day and i was having a conversation with someone is that people that haven't experienced depression frequently don't understand what's going on and they kind of start judging the person that has depression, they'll say things, you know, like, well, just get up, you know, just yeah, get, it, get together. it together, get in the shower, go take a, go take a run. You know, they don't understand what depression does to someone. Yeah. It's, it's so indescribable really. I think in, unless you've lived it, mm -hmm. it just seems to um, just pull all the, the energy that you have out you don't have any energy or desire to do anything. I had uh, one patient described to me years ago. She said, having depression was like, for her, she said, just the thought of going and getting in the shower, the energy that was going to be required to do that, for her, it felt like trying to pull the Leviathan from the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, yeah. And I think some, like for me, I would almost forget how to shower even like like do basic things like eat and and shower and things like that you just don't even you're so far gone that you don't even really know how anymore yeah. if that makes any yeah, sense it does it's just you just you get pulled in a very very dark place and it feels very lonely and isolating because you don't know it starts feeling very hopeless I was like, what is anybody else going to do about this? Nobody can save me from this. And so I, listening to your experience of that and really having gone through it off and on for the majority of your life, it was kind of like a, I don't know, kind of like a dark neighbor that never quite moves away, you know, that comes over every so often and then leaves. Mm -hmm. And so I feeling for, you know, your experience with that and then finding myself feeling very thankful that you were able to reach out and you were so close to being what actually what happens when people are depressed that you described so eloquently was people they when taking their life is feels like a good thing they don't yeah. want to be alive anymore no and it's almost like this strange act of altruism like I know a lot of people say oh that's selfish but I think when you're actually going through it and when you're making plans, it's like, you know, that people are going to be sad initially and, and you feel terrible for that. It's heartbreaking, but you think you're going to give them this gift of not having to deal with you anymore. 
Yeah. I've heard that before too. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I'm so thankful that you decided to go to the hospital, even though you thought that that was just kind of like a little stopgap there for your family, that they were just going to, the hospital was just going to spit you back out and then you were going to go take your life. That's not what happened. What happened instead? So, yeah, basically I, I was just thinking, oh, the hospital is going to be a bit of an inconvenience, but at the very most they'll hold me for 24 hours and whatever, you know, I've been alive this long. I can wait another 24 hours if it'll make people feel better in the end. Um, but uh, so I went into emergency. They took me into psych emergency. Um, they did let my partner sit with me for a while. Um, even with COVID, he wasn't really supposed to, but they made an exception, which I still kind of feel terrible about it because that's that's not an easy place to see, um, especially when you're healthy, I think. So that must have been, you know, really difficult for him. But um so I went there and talked to a crisis nurse and she said that they were going to call the ER doctor and see what they wanted to do. Um, so the ER doctor came in a couple hours later and talked to her again. She asked me all the same kind of questions and uh, filled out the paperwork for me to be admitted as an involuntary patient. So basically I, I couldn't leave to go, you know, carry out my plan even if I wanted to um so I stayed there for nine days I was in psych emergency under suicide watch for a couple of days and then they moved me to the IPU um, inpatient psychiatric unit and that's when they really kind of started with the more intense like the first couple days were basically just keeping me safe from myself we didn't really do anything I was on a lot of medications um and then moving to the IPU, the more intensive therapy started. And I was still pretty, you know, I was cooperative, but I didn't, I didn't care. I was still biding my time. And then this one night I was lying awake in bed. Um, they'd been, I think when you go to the hospital, like generally they're pretty, um, when you're out of the hospital, pretty cautious with psych meds and how they adjust them. But in the hospital, it's almost like, well, you're here. So we're just gonna you know, go <laughs> full bore with oh, wow. them and, and you're here just in case so I I couldn't sleep I was like super euphoric and stuff it was really strange and uh the medevac helicopter came bringing a critically ill or injured patient from a smaller hospital to this bigger hospital for treatment and as soon as they got there they called a code blue and so I was lying there listening to all this and I started thinking about the patient's family and like my god they must be having one of the scariest nights they'll ever know and then I started thinking about my own family and thinking well how can I have so much compassion for this person's family when I know the decision I want to make will devastate my own family and then I started thinking about the patient themselves and thinking wow what a strange juxtaposition they are here fighting to live and I am here fighting to die and one of us has a decision so in that moment it was kind of like really this fork in the road and I felt like I had to choose in that moment I could either bide my time for you know as long as it took for them to let me out and I could go kill myself or I could be an active participant in my treatment plan try to get well enough to leave the hospital so that I could get out and and share my story and write 
write my book, write music, and and try and turn some a really difficult situation into something positive because I think when you're going through it, like you said, you feel so alone and you feel like there's nobody else who could possibly understand what you're going through. And even for like my family, when I was admitted, they were looking for information online and things like that about what that experience would actually be like. And there just wasn't a lot of information out there. So I wanted to write it, you know, in solidarity for the other people who are struggling and the people that you know, we've lost to this disease and also to hopefully educate other people who might have a loved one going through it to, you know, what what helps, what doesn't help, what, what might they actually be going through in the hospital. Wow. And, I, and I'm going to mention that that's the memoir that you're talking about. Yeah, yes. I'm going to mention that here in just a few minutes. So, wow, that's amazing. So how has your life been since then? It hasn't been terribly long, maybe a year or a little over a year and a half since all of that happened. How have you been since then? Yeah, just a little over a year. It's been really good for me. I find that I I really have to have things to do and to look forward to and, and to really find that purpose, the why to get up every day. Um, so it's something I'm really aware of with myself that I, I do need. So initially it was getting home and as soon as I could, um, writing down, especially the details from the hospital, just while they were they were really fresh and um, writing that book and publishing it and everything was like, that was a lot of work. It was way more work than I, I could have even imagined. And, you know, I have three albums out and I was like, oh, it'll just be like another album. And I mean, it is and it isn't. Um, we also did like the audiobook at the same time. I recorded that and narrated it. So it was, that was really busy. And then the book came out. And as soon as the book came out, I started writing songs for a new album. Um, it's kind of funny because the book's called Holding On By Letting Go. And everybody jokes that the new album should be called Holding On By Letting Go, the musical, because it's like this, um, <laughs> this soundtrack for a book almost. So it really turns the experiences I lived in the book into music to hopefully reach, you know, an even wider audience through a different medium, but still communicating that same message. Um, so we actually just finished the recording of that album this week. So that'll be coming out right away. So it's been, it's been a really busy year, which is, it's really good for me. It's definitely something I've figured out for myself that I need. I need to have that purpose. I need to have a project that I'm working on that I need to follow through on. Wow, you have been quite prolific in the last, <laughs> in the last year or so. Yeah, it's, it's been a crazy year. Like, I think we all think about, you know, we're coming up on the end of 2021 and everybody thinks about the past year and they're like, wow, I did a you lot. You did a lot. <laughs> I mean, time goes by fast, does it not? Yeah, yeah, it does. But like the past, the two years before that, I felt like I did nothing. So I was making You're up. You're making up. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Heather, we're about to wrap up. I'm just wondering, I want to give you an opportunity if you have any uh, last minute thoughts or words of wisdom that, that you would like to share with the Phoenix and Flame audience, you're welcome to do that. Anything come to mind? Yeah, I'm, I never like to sit and, you know, 
give empty platitudes like oh tomorrow's a better day (laughs) everything gets better because I know when I was going through it and people would say that to me that would be like the second that I would stop listening I think it makes the person saying it feel better but it doesn't make the person listening to it feel better at all but what I can tell you is there will come a day when you'll stop in a moment and you'll feel so much profound joy in that moment and you'll stop and you'll think to yourself, I would have missed this. So hang on for that moment because it is worth it. Awesome. Well, Heather, I appreciate so much you taking your time and your energy to come and be so open and transparent with me and with uh, the Phoenix and Flame listeners, because I know there's going to be people that you're going to reach through my podcast that they're listening. And for all I know, for all you know, uh, they might be struggling with thoughts of suicide today or whenever it is that they end up listening, you know, to the episode and uh, your words and your experience and your willingness to share and to be open and transparent with it really is, is very touching and meaningful. And I I appreciate you so much. Thank you so much. If anyone in the, the Phoenix and Flame community out there, if you've listened to the episode today and it has, meant anything to you, if it has touched you at all, if you feel like that you want to share it or you have a friend or a family member that you feel like needs to hear Heather's story, um, please share the episode. Use whatever social media platform is appealing to you, whether it's Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or whatever floats your boat. I would appreciate because the more we can share the more we can build our community and reach out to one another and really be supportive. So I appreciate everyone tuning in to another episode of Phoenix and Flame. And this is Dana, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day.